Welcome back to Consilience Conversations, Episode 6, Free Will. And back with me again is my esteemed colleague, Dr. Matthew Roos. And with us, our, our good friend and actually linking friend and special guest is Mr. Daniel Babcock. Welcome, Babcock. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. Well, so when, uh, when Dr. Bruce, when Matt and I first started this, um, this series of conversations, uh, this, these consilience conversations, one of the, uh, the topics he explicitly mentioned in the very first meeting that he never wanted to try and tackle was free will because it's such a sticky issue. And uh, what I find so funny about the basis for this conversation is uh, of all the listeners we have, you were the first listener to actually leave us a message and your message was, and your very first question was about free will. And so eventually Matt just said, we just gotta, we just gotta have this guy on and see what he's got. And, um, well, we're going to put this to rest. I'm obviously, I'm obviously not a very good listener. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, we got to put, but I think, I I think Matt got it right there. We, uh, people have been debating this for thousands of years, but, um, now, you know, we've come together in this incredible agora, this, uh, this new market space. And it's just time to put this issue to, to rest. And, you know, I think we have about 45 minutes here. And we so, um, you, know, I, you know, that might be a little much for time. So we'll, you know, we might have to stretch it out at the end. Um, but, uh, yeah, we thought we might take a crack at it. So, well, I guess first, Matt, did you want to maybe tell us a little bit about these experiments that you have uh, listed here, the Benjamin Libet experiments from the 80s, the John Dylan Haynes in 2008, sure. and maybe what's changed in the technology between those, and maybe just then Babcock or I can broadly lay out what the free will or the issue with free will traditionally has been, uh, philosophically and literarily. I've also got a text from Dante here. His Purgatorio has some comments on that. Okay, sure, yeah, that sounds good. Um, so there's really sort of two different, um, there's two different subsets of sort of experiments that I'll, I'll try to go through that quickly. And if you guys want to, uh, ask me more about them or we'll go we can go into more depth if you like but so the 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 this one here by Benjamin Libet that's sort of the uh you know he was the the pioneer in this area and he did a set of experiments in which the uh subjects he has subjects uh, effectively just decide when to move their hand or flip their wrists you know uh, um move their wrist or press a button I think there are a variety of different types of experiments but really what the subject does is they um, they, they make that decision of their own accord when they're going to make that movement. And during that time, they're watching a, some sort of clock, not necessarily a wall clock, but he actually has some sort of <clears throat> mechanical device in these experiments where there's like a, it's kind of like a wall clock. You see some dot moving around in, in some sense. It's really an oscilloscope. But in any case, uh, what they're instructed to do, uh, paraphrasing, is just sit there calmly, decide, and when they decide that they're going to make a movement, they're watching this screen, and, and so they see what the sort of the number or the position is of the clock. And, so, and then they make their movement. And then after they make that movement, they report what the clock time was or what the position was when they decided to make that movement. So there's all sorts of problems with this to begin with because self-reporting is really just how can you it's, – it's sort of ironic that we're trying to talk about a conscious process and whether it's conscious or not, whether it's free will or not, and yet you have to report – uh, the time that you decided to make this happen. So but in any case, the, the, the summary is that uh, in terms of the data that's collected is there, the researchers are recording uh, sort of the electrical potential or the electrical signal that is present uh, above the motor cortex on the outside of the scalp. And that's an electroencephalography uh, signal or EEG for short. Um, and what he observes is that there is sort of an elevation in the, the voltage or the signal uh, that is rely or fairly reliably present um, about half a second before the time at which the subjects actually report that they are going to that they've made their decision. So it would appear that there's one possibility is that um, really they you know there there's a signal in the brain that indicates that they've made this decision before the subject is consciously aware that they've made that decision. So really that's that's the whole point. It calls in this question of free will and sort of. And, you know, you guys can t- take it uh, into what the f- definition of free will is. And, and just because it's, I, I suppose it's, uh, if it's not conscious, then it's not free will, though one might argue you could have unconscious free will. Um, there is a criticism of that experiment, which is that it was just uh, one movement. Um, and there's a lot of different things of what that neural signal could have meant. It, it doesn't necessarily just mean that they made a decision. 
Uh, it may have been an actual like a preparation for a movement or a planning for a movement or a var wide variety of other things, really. Um, but, you know, those, this experiment has been sort of redone in various ways over the years. And so I cite this one here from um, John Dylan Haynes in 2008. And it's very similar, except in this case, they, the subject had two hands and two buttons. And they, their decision was not only when to initiate the movement, but which button to press. Hmm. And that allows you to sort of disambiguate the, the, um, whether it was movement planning versus um, actual decision making to some degree because of the fact that, you know, the right side of the motor cortex controls the left side of the body and, and vice versa. And so the signals are clearly, um, it doesn't mean they're not still related to some element of, of movement preparation or action but it does reduce the probability that we're confusing or conflating these things. And so also in 2008, uh, that experiment, they used fMRI, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, it, rather than this EEG signal. So uh, that's just a, a much superior technology for these kind of neuroscience experiments. Um, so that's, and, and effectively they, he, you know, that those experiments uh, sort of gave similar results. And um, so, it seems that, uh, I guess there's one follow-up thing there, is that you know, one of the interpretations of that is not only does our unconscious mind uh, sort of make this decision, and only after the fact does our sort of conscious mind become aware of it, our conscious mind also may sort of, it, but the conscious mind believes that we made, it, we made that decision. So it sort of actually infers from our behavior what the decision was. So um, you know, it may almost be like, you in retrospect you you believe you did this but you're really sort of you know uh explaining away or i shouldn't really use that term but you are um trying to put up you're, you're sort of unconsciously coming up with an explanation of why your body did what it did without really realizing it. so that's what's one possibility and you know i also have lists so i'll leave it at that except i have you know there are a number of criticisms of these experiments um and and it's really and, and many times these researchers are not claiming they're not making bold statements about this proves that free will does not exist or something that, you know, they are professional scientists and they say there's, you know, they put forth a lot of discussion and possibilities and speculation, but the data are what the data are. Um, but there are, there are a lot of questions about what those um, uh, results really mean. And so it's not clear. Um, and so I don't want to talk too much about it beyond that. It's let you guys maybe pipe in, except um, we can either pause there or I can tell you about these, these other ideas about how there are, you know, the brain is noisy, neurons are noisy. Uh, they sort of, um, they don't always fire in the same pattern when presented with the same stimuli or when you take the same action. So there are some that, that speculate that that noise, what we call noise is actually sort of free will and action. Um, hmm. That might be some representative or that it, it's a little hairy, but that the, we don't understand what that neural noise is but that neural noise is sort of uh, our free will, uh, you know, the physical evidence for that. On the could other you hand- could you, could you define noise? Yeah, well, that's part of the problem, right? So what one person's noise is, might be uh, a functional signal or a process within the brain that you just didn't know what it was until you, you know, to do enough experiments and, and, and work out what that really is. So, but what I sort of mean by noise is uh, what I alluded to before, if uh, an example being if I'm looking at a screen and perfect have you know your head and eyes focused head perfectly held in place and your fo eyes focusing on the same thing and you are shown a red dot I'm just making that up uh, certain neurons will fire in the visual cortex um, or they will be inhibited from firing and you might do that multiple times over but those neurons don't respond in exactly the same way every time um, Perhaps more important to this discussion, though, it's the same thing if you you take a, a you you take an, a motor action um, and maybe just tapping your finger, something very simple that seems like the exact same neural uh, firing pattern would be uh, executed in order to then, of course, stimulate your muscles and and make that movement. But it's actually different every time, and that's that's sort of the noise in the system. Um, the other I guess I'll, I'll dive, dive into this just for another 30 seconds, which is, um, but more importantly, uh, you know, so that's one element of this. Another element about neural noise actually is about um, 
it's related to, in a way, priming and cognitive biases. And under the hood, you know, our brains are sometimes building up and accumulating evidence. So in some experiments where they show uh, they're not related to free will, but I'll get to, I'll make the connection momentarily. Uh, if you have um, sort of a pattern of dots moving across a screen and these dots, this is a traditional sort of set of uh, visual uh, neuroscience experiments. Um, these dots are blinking on and off and they're moving in short little uh, durations. And sometimes the dots are not all going in the same direction. They're mostly moving in one direction, but some are going in another direction. So, so there's sort of a correlation that correlation isn't 1.0 and may go, um, you know, and, it, and sometimes if the correlation is low, you have to stare at this thing for quite a while in order to perceive what direction the, the, the majority of the dots are moving. And so in those experiments, when you, uh, people have done this in monkeys many times and they're recording from the neurons, uh, a number of neurons uh, while they do this, they, what you see is that sort of, the, you know, the monkey has to make some decision for its uh, tasty juice reward <laughs> if it does the right thing. And so it sits there and stares at it a while and you see neurons sort of, uh, sets of neurons building up and there are like certain firing patterns emerging. But it doesn't happen instantaneously, it takes some time. And so it's essentially accruing information. Um, and then when it sort of, you know, hypothetically hits some sort of threshold, then the monkey is certain enough or feels certain enough that it really believes it knows what direction the dots are moving in the majority and it makes its decision. So, um, so that's very clear. That's, those experiments have uh, been done pretty thoroughly over a number of years, but there's sort of a speculation that that's actually, I mentioned here in this, uh, uh, in the middle part of the criticism section, Aaron Sugar uh, experiment in 2012, you know, the, the sort of the idea is that um, even, you're not, even though you're not presented with a stimulus uh, or cued to make a decision, you, still are, you are still making a decision. And that decision may be somewhat, there's some internal process that builds up um, and it may almost be like a random walk. Um, but once enough of the neurons are firing in one particular manner and they sort of accumulate, it's not really evidence in this case, but uh, as soon as enough of them are sort of um, um, pushing, pushing, you know, feeding to other neurons down the line and they push those ones over some threshold, then an action is made. So, um, Part of that is, and there's some other evidence there that's tied into showing that um, this noise may be, in some sense, part of this decision process. But that doesn't really argue whether it's it's a uh, conscious or unconscious decision. Uh, it's just that. So, you know, it's particularly in that Haynes study, um, the evidence is that you know even ten, even upwards of ten seconds before the, the subject believed that they had made decision there was some neural evidence that, that that decision had already been made. But that may not be the best interpretation. It may be that it's just building up evidence over those 10 seconds, and that's 10 seconds when you first start seeing this sort of noise uh, increase to the point that it's gonna hit this, eventually this threshold. Well, that's okay. A, okay, so I, yeah, I have three things based on that and uh, a big bridge over to Babcock then. The first, the, the first thing I wonder is to what extent that sort of um, uh, neural buildup theory is uh, related to Haidt's concept of the relationship of like the old brain or elephant to the writer and that maybe the writer is a manifestation of the process by which you know sort of neurons turn on and then uh, sort of a motor action is then disinhibited uh, after a certain moment and to what extent that would be related to the temperament of a human so like different humans depending on their neuroticism or extroversion or whatever you define approach or withdrawal as uh, have differing sort of level levels or amount of neurons that need to turn on in order for them to engage in that sort of behavior, right? And I was also wondering earlier to what extent um, the decision might be made by the brain, but it's the conscious will that in inhibits or disinhibits the decision. So like maybe you know what it is that it is you need to do in a situation, but you, you hesitate or you don't. I, I was wondering whether that would factor in. The next thing is, I want to give some context for free will. It's about the biggest question that exists throughout all epic literature in the West. And in the Iliad is the great question of Achilles, does he have free will to choose to live a short life or a long life? In the, uh, uh, in the Odyssey, it is a question that uh, um, Odysseus has to ask, would he prefer to be immortal uh, with no choice, or would he prefer to be responsible for his choices and live a, you know, sort of a life full of misery, and he chooses the life of misery as the better life. 
And Virgil, it's a major question for Aeneas, whether he has free will or the wheels of fate are just moving him. And of course, in Dante, the question of free will is brought up in the Purgatorio uh, explicitly, not, not only here, but in particular here in Purgatorio 16 by a character in the Circle of Wrath or the Terrace of Wrath named Marco Lombardo, where he says, you who are living, refer every cause upward to the heavens alone, as if they of necessity moved all things with them. If this were so, free will would be destroyed in you. There would be no justice and happiness for good or grief or for, for evil. Basically suggesting that the basic concept of Western civilization is uh, if there's going to be a heaven or hell or you're good or bad, there needs to be free will. It's also the basis of our justice system, right? If you're going to be punished for something, you need to have done wrong. Um, so it is a major practical and philosophical question at the framework of all our literature and philosophy just to let people know why we're thinking very hard about this. Um, and I can say more, the heavens initiate your movements. I do not say all of them, but supposing I did say so, a light is given you to know good and evil and free will, which if it endure fatigue in its first battles with the heavens afterwards, if it is well-natured, it conquers completely. That reminds me a lot of the, the idea of what you said of the neurons turning on uh, uh, with the heavens maybe moving you at first, uh, Matt for sort of the, his sort of primitive account of what it is you're saying. Um, can, I, can I add to this as well? Yeah, God, please do. And I didn't even mention, I wanted to talk about how the last podcast we did together was Westworld, where the fundamental question asked by the Black Hat is, did he have free will the whole time? And so yeah. just to yeah, say that this is a major legal, religious, philosophical, literary, neurologic, or you know, neuroscientific question. This is the biggest consilience question possible. All of these fields care about the answer to this question. Yeah. So the, the only text I was going to add is uh, Oedipus Tyrannus, which to me, if you think about free will, is, is the fundamental text. That's right. That's right. The question of whether or not he makes decisions. But uh, at the end, at about uh, 1330 or so, um, when the chorus is asking him, uh, why did he blind himself, right? So the chorus says, doer of dreadful deeds, how did you bring yourself so to quench your sight? Which of the gods set you on? And Oedipus replies, it was Apollo, Apollo, my friends, who accomplished these cruel, cruel sufferings of mine, and no other hand struck my eyes but mine own miserable hand. For why did I have to see when there was nothing I could see with pleasure? In other translations, I believe that... Uh, they make that the decision was mine, right? The choice was mine. Oedipus makes this claim that all the other things, all the other terrible things that had happened to him were the God's doing, but the blinding was his own choice. That's right. And uh, just to give the viewer some context for Oedipus, he is born with a prophecy that he will lay with his mother and kill his father. And so is uh, supposed to be killed by a shepherd who then gives him away to another kingdom where he's raised, adopted. He then later hears that prophecy and not wanting to kill his adopted parents, who he thinks are his real parents. He flees them, meets his father on the road, kills him, and then uh, answers the, the riddle of the Sphinx at um, Thebes, and then marries the queen there, who's now widowed, who very, you know, without asking many questions, marries this man, and that happens to be his mother. And uh, so he sort of lives a lie as this ultimate hero until, again, Apollo sends a plague to Thebes, and he sort of has to unravel uh, what has happened and what he has really been doing. Aristotle calls it the ultimate tragedy because the revelation and the turn of fate happened at the same moment. But um, yeah, so Matt, we have some literary uh, uh, connections here and we do have some, some context. What, uh, what is it, uh, what have you been hearing us saying that sounds either crazy or, or interesting or, well, yeah. Uh, I guess there's a few things, but uh, first of all, it's, uh, it's you know, obviously, you, get, you, get, you guys have a deep knowledge of, um, you know, ancient literature or Western literature. Of course, I'm sure we can all agree there's, there's it's highly likely that these issues were thought of uh, for, you know, millennia before uh, recorded history as well. So who knows what they had thought, but maybe from the earliest days of, of our sort of modern intelligence, uh, these, these questions were likely on some people's minds. So... Um, again, we'll, we're just, we, maybe in another 30 minutes, we can, we can get this resolved. Right. Um, so I'll just, but I, let me address a couple of your things you said there, Alex, and then, uh, something else came to my mind that I would like to get your guys' thoughts on. Yeah. Um, but first of all, you, you know, you mentioned the, 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 you know, the elephant and the rider and how sort of like 
the elephants are unconscious and here we are the rider and we think we have a lot of control but we really have very little control and perhaps the connection to neural noise there would be something like you know different people have a different elephant and uh ah, just as the yes. neural noise um you know may drive you to sort of decisions um and it's not to you know i, I don't really like to use the word noise too much because it sounds like it's all random right. um but perhaps different people have sort of different thresholds, right? So that maybe yes. they have a lower threshold when it comes to um, making some fast decisions or executions. And so uh, whether those decisions are, are considered to be right or wrong, they are just faster at getting there. Um, they may, or others may have a, a higher threshold, meaning that it takes them longer to get there. And you might consider that them as being more judicious in their decision making. Um, so, you know, that's one possible way to look at it. Um, that just makes me think, just to add in as a footnote, yeah. your, what you think is your consciousness could just be the expression of your sort of uh, neurologically embodied temperament, right? That it makes it both more special and less special to me that you do not freely mm -hmm. choose mm -hmm. how it is that you manifest yourself because you have these differing thresholds and so that's your temperament and thus who you are. But you will only ever be the thing that you are built in the way that you are because the conditions that make you possible and your self-expression possible are impossible to replicate or at least very, very, very would, you know. Yeah. Certainly everyone's going to be unique in that regard. Right. Um, that, that's like, uh, so when we were, when I was, you know, doing reading on this, what I'm thinking is that, uh, or what I was thinking is that um, perhaps this idea of free will is maybe we're thinking about it incorrectly that, it, that, the idea of like, there's a, a single decision that I must make, uh, you know, whether or not to move my finger and that this is a representative free will, but really it's more about the construction of the self that would be the person who would move their finger. I mean, obviously that's a, not a moral choice, right? Uh, I guess perhaps it is if you're, that finger is moving a, a trigger on a gun, but, um, but that the idea of free will is more uh larger in scope i guess macroscopic rather than microscopic does that, that make sense that's, that's right because it's not that you're just moving a finger it's that you're an a you're a creature motivated by aggressive uh by defensive aggression to take violent action against uh a hostile outgroup creature and that yeah, just I'm, manifests in its particular form right i mean that's what i'm thinking of is um you know aristotle's idea of virtue right that it's uh it's it's not like one single shot of the arrow. It's the aim of the of the archer. Yes, yeah. and where what I think we're wondering is whether that aim is sort of set neurologically. Right. Um, yeah. And whether that means you're free or not, because I mean, it does mean you're unique. I think Matt, you nailed it there. That that's and then that that almost seems like the better thing to focus on to me. Than well, whether, I, I would yeah. want to sorry. I'll, I'll let you finish up there, Alex. But uh, uh, I would make one connection to what uh, Daniel just said yeah. um, in terms of and maybe this isn't you know this isn't quite what you meant. I'm sure, but uh, back to the neuroscience experiments. You know, a criti one of the criticisms of them is that these are all sort of mundane little tests and decisions that they make, and they are highly constrained by the experimental situation and what they are told to do by the um, experimenter or the researcher. So it's, it's a far cry from the sort of the, uh, you know, these are things that they're doing on the order of seconds, if not, if not less, which is a far cry from our decisions that we, you know, we would like to think that we, we plan things out, we have goals, we have agendas, and, you know, the kind of decisions that we think of, you know, typically under the conversation of free will, are ones that you spent um, minutes hours years or a lifetime yeah, uh, yeah the, the experiment felt more like response to stimuli even though it was a choice about which button to push it still felt more like stimuli response rather than a complex matrix choice well yeah i would like that that would be an interesting uh aspect to add to an experiment like this like uh choices with heavier moral weights or heavier like lifetime outcomes like choice of college choice of mate choice of, you know, as opposed to like choice of uh, where you eat today or choice of button to press, like ones mm -hmm. that had that additional dimension added, whether that would activate different parts of the brain or, or we would be able to see something through the longer decision-making process and whether articulation were a part of it and how that actually affected the decision-making process. Because I think that's, a, that's what the philosophers are really looking for. 
does, does the process of articulation and the transmission of information between humans have the potential to change our choices and thus our actions in the world? I think that's another aspect of this question. Um, yeah, totally agree. Uh, it's just, you know, and of course it's, it would be massively, you know, who knows how any could, one could implement experiments that could measure things with those kind of time scales and those sort of weights to the decision and what areas of the brain are you going to monitor and with what resolution. So right. it's effectively impossible with today's technology. Um, but, and the researchers recognize this. That's partly why uh, you're really, if you're a researcher and these are your data, you're really stepping out of a limb if you, if you try to actually say that this does or does not support free will or determinism. Um, and, and another, uh, just I'll, uh, one other thought I had there, I think ac actually you uh, cued me on this uh, with your initial uh, comments and questions, Alex, is that, um, you know, conscious, you know, another thing maybe, and this is sort of a criticism, is that of these experiments or these, some interpretation of these experiments, is that you may have, um, maybe that your unconscious, you know, mind, or you are not consciously aware that sort of this decision has come about, but that doesn't mean it's not necessarily the conscious mind didn't had in some way have a manner of, you know, in the end, actually allowing or stopping this, this action to be taken. So um, there's just not enough data there to say that um, sort of a decision was, or uh, maybe, maybe it was like, I should say a candidate decision was put forth subconsciously and, but did it enter the conscious mind? Um, with enough so, so at, 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 like at going time that you could you could stop that if you wanted to or you you just allowed it and that's okay um so so, just to, just to clarify are you talking about like going to a polling booth and some you claim you don't know who you're going to vote for but subconsciously you do is there any way to change that subconscious choice you've already made um would that be an example of what you're talking about no i i, I don't think that's a i think that's an interesting example to potentially discuss but again this is related to the fact that this is sort of contrived very uh experiment very short uh um, you know time to act or or and it's very simple in what you're doing and um it's not designed you know they do some of this where sorry to say that they they are some types of experiments like this where they actually you know the, the person is instructed to do these things as we, as we just discussed, but occasionally a sound is played or something notifies the subject that they should not do anything. So if they were just about to do it, um, they get a cue and it stops them. So, or it, they, they try to stop, but you know, if sort of in a state, since the decision has already been made, they might actually make that movement. Um, so anyway, that, that just gets into, uh, that's really more about trying to time these things and try to find ways for uh, the researchers to get a glimpse or a, an estimate of when that decision was really made by that person um, instead of their just sort of like overt report of that. But the end, you know, all I'm really trying to say is that um, we just don't know that if uh, there's, I think you're with the polling example, that's, uh, they might claim they don't know, um, or sorry, with the voting example, they might claim they don't know, but they probably really do know um, but that doesn't mean they might, you know, I still think they could change their mind hypothetically, uh, in the, you know, right when they go into the polling booth. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. I'll leave it at there. Well, it's interesting because it does seem that the, you know, the art of advertising does exist precisely in order to try and sway somebody's expression of conscious will, but you made, you made me think another question, Matt, which, um, which is based on sort of the temperamental aspect and sort of a legal aspect and um, sort of the implications of this sort of thinking uh, if we want to constrain free will, which is if your consciousness is an expression of your sort of neurologically embodied temperament and you make decisions which, which we find, you know, requiring of punitive action, like something that needs to be legally punished, are you truly at fault for that? And mm -hmm. It, it, and if if we define it, if your expressions of free will are based on the you know that which is already grounded within you, you are that sort of sort of creature. You know, is that sort of is that the thinking behind a I suppose like sort of fascists in their sort of programs where they're like, well, some people just don't measure up, and b is that I don't know is that to some extent the implication of uh 
What is the implication? Well, let me, uh, yeah, I, I have some thoughts. Ahead. Actually, this, I had something else, and I think either of you could, uh, to, could discuss this or speak to this a little bit or just give, give your opinions. I think it would be interesting. And let me, let me take what you just said there, Alex, and sort of kind of modify it a little bit and throw it back in your court. Sure. Um, so this just occurred to me, you know, during this conversation, and that is, um, you know, as you already mentioned, that if, if it was proven, if we knew that we did not have free will, again, that would call into question our justice system and what is moral and what is not. Um, but in a way, hypothetically, let's say that is proven, um, that we don't tr have free will, at least in, a, in sort of maybe the conventional sense, this sort of conscious free will. Um, but the issue here, one issue that is that we absolutely feel that we have free will. That right. is you and I, we, you know, we, there are crazy neuroscience cases, um, where someone's, you know, they don't feel like they're in control of their own arm or something like that. And that actually, those would be, those are case studies that I didn't look into that would have been, they might've been interesting in light of this conversation. Um, but, you know, we feel that we have free will. So even if we're told we're not, um, does it matter? You know, so, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you have a justice system that punishes <clears throat> someone for uh, what is considered bad behavior and they are, you know, the, the, it might be argued that they couldn't control themselves, but, but that person certainly did feel like they could control themselves. So, right. um, you know, maybe, maybe it's, you know, I guess it's sort of ironic to try and say, is it moral to implement, to have a justice system like that if there's no free will, but you know, what is morality if we can't, if, if we don't even, if free will doesn't exist anyway. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe one, my point here is, uh, you guys, you know, I'll leave it up to you guys to discuss a little further. It seems to me that perhaps it's okay to, you know, we, to have the sort of legal system that we have and the moral judgments that we have, even if we don't have free will, because that we all actually feel and believe that we do have free will. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's very interesting too. I, I don't exactly remember the branch off which I came in order to think this, but to some extent selection has how, uh, you know, natural and sexual selection from a Darwinian sense has, has shaped our personalities and our expressions of our temperaments and sort of the boundaries of our free will, right? Uh, and, and culture has provided us with a, a much broader known territory so we understand better the sort of, sort of social expression of our actions. And it does seem as if, you know, sort of the foundation of education as well as the legal system is that we teach you all of these things so that you know them so that you can make the correct choices. And I mean, uh, I mean, even the fundamental arts are called the liberal arts, those by which you free your, your mind. And so uh, another angle I think I would like to come at this from at some point is to what extent, and this is something we've talked about before in our habits conversation, uh, the building in of a massive network of skills creates a more adapted being to greater amounts of context and thus you are a freer human and that you have a larger domain of competency or known territory and to what extent that's also uh could be called free will or freeing yourself as a creature and and to what extent that that is saying knowledge is power and that learning makes you more adapted <clears throat> to greater amounts of environment yeah, you know, actually, that's um, I'm thinking about it. Maybe it uh, it could even be the opposite. Right. <laughs> so, in, in in some sense, so like uh, consider this situation where um, to again linking it back to our discussions about habits. Um, and you know, we like to talk about motor habits because they're the easiest to 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 understand and that we are sort of all in some sense familiar with personally. But um, the more you educate yourself in some sense you might have a wide uh wide and broad experiences so you don't actually really ever uh develop singular habits that are bad for you on the other hand you might develop lots of habits because you 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 your thought you, you know you exercise these thought processes so often that they become a habit once something is a habit it almost does enter sort of like the the unconscious um you know you execute and you don't think about it really right um, so in some sense, perhaps if you, you are highly educated, but uh, especially if you are highly but narrowly educated, you, maybe you are in some sense in the end, uh, you have less free will for those things because you become a sort of stimulus response uh, uh, being 
when it comes to those types of actions, but not all actions, not all actions necessarily. Yeah, or your domain of action becomes so specialized that you exercise great freedom within that highly specialized domain, but uh, you suffer from limited freedom and other ones, and that could potentially help ex explain sort of addiction or fetishism too, <laughs> I imagine. Um, that mm. you uh, sort of, you know, your domain of competency becomes so small that you you become smaller and smaller by just inhabiting that and not, you know, expanding your, 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 you know, your range of consciously, you know, uh, developed habits, like ability to enjoy food and go out, you know, if you're just a scientist looking at a microscope, just a stereotype, uh, and you never go out and eat and you don't dance and you don't exercise, the world just gets bigger and bigger while you get smaller and smaller. Um, right. But yeah, no, that it does seem to be that I like that there does seem to be a compromise in there and that you seem to be able to choose how well you build your habits in and in which direction you build them, right? If I want to be a baseball player, I'm going to build much different motoric habits than if I want to be a soccer player. Um, we, we're going to play very different sports, though there is some crossover. And so if I do understand that that is going to limit my being to some extent, that almost makes me think that that's what Dante's idea of love is or Aristotle's that you choose some limited domain and then you get as deep into it as possible because you can't have everything. Um, you can't have full expression of the will, right? You can't be incredible at everything, sort of like childhood dream. But you can get uh, increasingly free or, or good at expressing uh, the form of an endeavor or a single or a series of endeavors, right? Like you can become a great baseball player, but as Michael Jordan showed, it's hard to become a great basketball player than baseball player uh, again. Do you think? Do you think education increases capacity for free will? Is that is that the path we're going on, or is it more just the idea that I think it could? I think there. That's that's. Uh, I think it could be seen in two different ways depending on the type of education you're you're taking on and what you're pursuing. So that's right, what I would experience. say. Like, Let me just limit it to experience. Let's say that. Well, yeah, Matt, what do you just like life experience? Yeah, well, just like, at, so for example, uh, a child, right, a five-year-old, um, is his capacity for free will different than a full mature adult? Huh. Right. That is uh, like Aristotle. Well, so how Aristotle, yeah, well, Matt, I want to, well, I, that's really interesting, Babcock. Matt, do you want to say the two ways you saw it first? Do those connect a little? Oh, sure. Uh, okay, so first I was thinking that um, as, you, as you experience more things, whether that's considered, whether you consider that learning or just experiencing things, maybe, I think this is what you were initially saying, Alex, that this gives you a much broader, uh, uh, I don't know, context, options, or the domain to, yeah, to work with, and therefore, so I don't know if I would say it's free will. It certainly gives you more options, like a more a broader palette of decisions and actions that you could take right um, and just from a pragmatic a, angle you know i i don't know i don't know if that anything really changes your free will except that's that's why i was getting the flip side of that uh to answer daniel's question is what i was thinking about if you if you narrowly focus on something um and not just narrowly focused but repetitively focus so maybe a scientist uh studying something isn't a good example because they're always digger. They're, they're, really, they're actually sort of building their knowledge base, right? They're just getting deeper and deeper. Into yeah. What about an expert concert pianist? Right. So they're, they're very stereotyped in their, uh, obviously, actions, but also their thought process when they're, um, you know, playing. And so maybe they, in some sense, if free will really is, uh, if we really do have some free will, perhaps in that domain, that concert pianist, after a lifetime or decades of playing, in some sense, has lower free will. Um, it might seem like they have a huge repertoire of things that they can do and they, and they do. Um, but they actually may have fewer choices or decisions that they are consciously making when they are performing. They actually do embody a form in the same neurological way that every concert pianist before them. That's wild. I never thought about it that way, but mm -hmm. it's actually physical because you inbuild the exact same skills and you try and get to the same level as the masters, right? Which means you functionally at a pragmatic level spend as much time during the day. And that was sort of my, my, um, my comment about the range of activities, if I can do 15 things in a day and you can do nine, the question of free will seems sort of moot because I do have more choices and therefore more free will by a pragmatic standard. Uh, rather right, than but I guess that, that was my point in kind of asking you about the capacity is, is just because I can, I can make more choices 
like is free will like a like you know can you level up in free will or is it just this is it like um you know just to use video game speak speech is it like getting speed boots it's just like the thing that you receive uh at birth uh by being a conscious rational human being and it's not a it's it doesn't increase over time but your the possibilities with which you can apply that tool increases you know it's kind of like uh i have a hammer and that hammer is my free will rather than the number of nails i have being the free will yeah and i definitely want to ask you matt and maybe we can consider this in the maybe the next episode about studies on will power too not mm-hmm. only because i do think your domain of competency increases and i think you use iq to to do that or at least something that would suggest information information processing over time um and rap, rapidity with which you do that and that um uh and so so just back to the willpower just the the idea also of you know what is willpower and how do people express it like people who study athletes and like people who do incredible things right like 100 mile marathons and stuff like that what it where does that come from how do they do that exactly is it like a conscious thing they do are and or are they just built to and what does it mean if they're built to does that mean physically does that mean neurologically as well like i think both right yeah yeah well i think that's uh you're right we should probably you know that's probably something we don't want to go down too deeply right now but uh that that it's those are good questions and uh yeah we could probably have you know explore that uh down the road um as as often is the case there's probably a mix of things both you know sort of genetic and nature versus nurture um, but I, I would, I do believe there's at least some, uh, some neuroscience experiments that sort of address, uh, willpower or motivation, uh, that we could, we could dive into. Okay. Wait, can I, can I give you a real time, uh, case study? Go ahead. Okay. So my dog just approached me, right? She wants to be pet, but I know that what she actually wants is a treat, right? Because this is about the time I always give her a specific treat in the day. Mm-hmm. So is that her will or is this, is she just replying to or responding to stimuli? Tough one. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, I think it's just stimuli, even, right? Well, uh, I'll say two things, you know, also I wanted to come back to something you mentioned, Daniel, which is about the, uh, um, you know, does a five-year-old have free, or, you know, how does their, yeah. Yeah. Do they have as much free will as we do or not? Yeah. Or is it changing? So I have a kind of a, a few thoughts, a, a couple of thoughts on that, but yeah. As for the dog, you know, if we can't even decide whether we have free will, <laughs> it's going to be real tough to decide whether an animal has, has free will. Um, they do seem to be moved by motivational forces. Well, and, she, and, and your dog, maybe she, you know, I think another, I think perhaps some, to me, perhaps more interest, interesting is, is she aware that she's deceiving you or trying yeah. to deceive you? Yeah. Or is she, and maybe this is part of your, your question, you know, does she have the sort of, free will or knowledge that she's taking this action um, yeah. with or, or, or trying to get me to respond to stimuli, right? Like if I come yeah. over and get him to pet me, then he will give me what I want. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, but just to follow up then one more, more quickly with this, the idea of like, does a five-year-old have yeah. more free will? You know, maybe I think that's an interesting question because uh, you know, we develop and the brain goes through a development stage, uh, you know, a lengthy development stage. Um, and it's somewhat, you know, we can, it, it'd be sort of easy to believe that, uh, well, first of all, an infant doesn't have free will, like a new, a just newly born baby, I would say has no free will. Um, and as the child ages, they probably, you know, if free will truly exists, they are probably accumulating greater and greater capacity for it, um, or ability for it. And, um, Part of that may be that the, you know, of course, as we mature, we uh, sort of our, our new brain can stop the, the, the old brain from driving all of our actions. And so the more and more we develop our sort of new brain, the neocortex, uh, the more we can uh, be, you know, we're, we're never really aware of our subconscious processing. That's why it's called subconscious. But we become... Um, more aware of our conscious processing, and perhaps that still uh, that can put more controls, uh, you know, um, gating of the subconscious processes in some sense. So I would just speculate that um, 
if free will exists, it probably does develop over time. And mm -hmm. you know, well, that's precisely what Aristotle says in his uh, Nicomachean Ethics. He puts this as sort of a philosophical puzzle. He says, "Who has more potential, um, a boy or a general?" And so he's sort of using a sophistical refutation here and using a word in two ways, right? Because a child has more potential to develop skill, right? And they have uh, more neural like sort of connections or pathways forming than they ever will at this time. However, they do not have as much free will if you manifest or you define it as the expression of skill, right? They have very mm -hmm. few skills and sophistication of skills as opposed to an adult. And an adult general, uh, you know, uh, like uh, how much more can he do and make happen in a moment than a child? And yet, uh, how much less of his brain does he use in doing that as opposed to, uh, as opposed to a child learning? And yet, how much more is actually inbuilt within him that enables him to do the things he does, right? Like he can speak, that's something he had to learn how to do. He understands sort of the strategy of war, that's something he had to learn to understand. He can still think in an active way with all of that, all of those tools, right? And so he is a very different creature, has manifested himself in reality, uh, even neurologically very differently from the child. And thus, he can act in a, you know, uh, his acts have more power, and that is how you define potential in that way. And so I think that agrees with what you're saying, that as, as you develop over time, you acquire sort of the, uh, you know, a wider range of abilities with which to use to act within the world. You become more adapted and more adaptable, ideally. Yeah, and um, I'll, I'll just, I still, I'll just I still might argue that it's like that, a... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say, it still feels kind of like a, like a sword right? Uh, that, a fi that free will is kind of like a sword you can use and a five-year-old just doesn't know how to use it as well as a master. Yeah, well, yeah sort that of sounds right. A, 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 that free will is uh, sort of higher level cognition, uh, cognitive processes, and not only just to use it, but also to guide or in some way modulate the, you know, the, the lower level processing, the subconscious processing. And maybe you you know, again, you can't, we don't understand ourselves. We don't, we don't perceive our subconscious processing, but nonetheless, maybe you've, the skill you've learned is of course, a sort of, uh, you know, the general learns is all is, is a wide range of world knowledge that helps them in their, uh, in, in battle and war. But they've also learned like many adults, simply how to, uh, control their consciousness to prevent the subconscious from, um, taking on most of the control of the body right yeah, and that that sounds like a good use of free will or definition of it perhaps that it's merely not merely but it is the it's the conscious mind not controlling but managing the subconscious mind yeah, i'm not sure how to... learning what's allowed to come through and learning that does seem to be what becoming sophisticated is right it's like learning how to articulate your aggression in a sophisticated way it's not that you're trying to do away with it it's just you need to filter it, right? You need yeah. to learn how to express it in the yeah. world. So not no. express it, but learn what is the socially, uh, uh, what are the socially available options and what is the best one for your current goal, right? Because- Yeah, now, can, can we take that and study the experiment, the experiment itself, which claims that 10 seconds ahead before you make the decision, you've made the decision. Are, are, is, the, is there a potential that we're, that we are, that we perceive stimuli before it happens? Is that like subconsciously? Well, remember in some of these experiments, there are no, uh, you know, there are stimuli in the sense that they are watching some, and there are other experiments that don't even have this, but there are stimuli that they are seeing that are not meant to guide their decisions or their behavior. It's just to report the time at which the subject believed or felt that they they that they had made a decision that they mm -hmm. and, and in a way uh, i think i have a line in here under the criticism criticisms it's uh the last one they're feeling an urge to act is an experience it's not a decision uh -huh. um, right so there's 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 a challenge there um but uh, you know the um you know the basics of the neurosciences are trying to say that yes the the neural there was enough neural information um, or information that could be extracted from the neural recording to not 100% of the time decide um, in the cases where someone had to make a decision that is a right-hand or left-hand decision, um, they could most of the time predict what the subject was going to do. 
But that does not mean that the subject um, could have changed that had they chosen to change it, per mm. se. Well, that's pretty interesting too, because it makes it seem as if, uh, insofar as you don't have a choice, that the the world exists at the level of neural information, right? Because you are you are informed sort of by the environment in a way that it doesn't matter what it is you feel or experience, it it's going to sort of report to your senses in the same way, which will then produce a sort of chain of. Uh, uh, you know, thoughts in your mind, which will likely result in a habitual decision to act in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, you know, it's very, it's very interesting. It makes, you know, neural information, instead of sounding like some intangible thing that doesn't exist, sound like that's what's rea what reality is actually made of. Um. <laughs> and, and these things are, uh, uh, you know, we don't know we're not, you know, they're not recording from every neuron in the brain and they're recording from, uh, you know, the fMRI is better, but um, it's still, um, you know, first of all, it, this gets back into the sort of like the noise idea. So um, just because you see some signal there, um, that may be part of the process, but that doesn't mean it, you know, and it's correlated with the, the decision that is made, but that doesn't mean it's the actual decision. Um, you know, right. perhaps there's other neurons that we're not recording that are, are better representations of sort of, of the actual sort of, con I should say, conscious decision, not unconscious decision. Um, so, uh, you know, we have to just guess because we don't have enough experimental data to, to really give us the answers we might be looking for. Yeah, and you know, it's just so interesting to what extent this question is a question of, can you replace your sort of fundamental motivational systems? It seems like that's been answered. We're not a blank slate. We do have our mm -hmm. motivational systems. And they're like sort of that's what psychoanalysis in the early 20th century sort of discovered, which we seem to remember but forget selectively, that like how to manifest your motivational forces, especially the aggressive and sexual ones in society, is tough. We are very complex creatures. We're very complex social rituals. We are a very selective culture too when it comes to romantic partners like you know we uh, in the west value monogamy you know there's marriage it's like it's high, highly selective it's not like with the bonobos for example and yeah. so so how to manifest yourself as a physical being in the world i don't think is an insulting thing about being a human but is like you are the most sophisticated animal anthropologically speaking that's ever existed and so how to sort of manage yourself and, uh, you know, what you are, you know, you're far more complex than a plane, a jet engine, um, you know, by many orders of magnitude, that that doesn't take away from what it is you're doing. It adds to what you're doing. You know, you're a physical being in the most complex social unit that's ever existed. And yes, you're responsible for that. <laughs> We'd like to, yeah, well, we... Like it or not, we are often held to be responsible for that. Right, so, uh, right, right. But we have no choice. We have no choice in that matter. <laughs> we have to well, guys. But you know what? Something, yeah. just, something just occurred to me. I, I don't know. You know, maybe our, our, our time is getting short, but I, I did just think of some other uh, a style of experiments I'll just re, uh, you know, relate to you guys that I think is kind of interesting. Um, you know, there are other types of experiments where um, they, they demonstrate how it's not really about free will. Uh, these are stimulus-driven experiments, but it's more about how our subconscious brain filters out information. And so, in some sense, you can't have free will if the subconscious is preventing you from perceiving some realities of the world, because then you have limited, at least it's reducing your free will because you are limited into your perception of the real world. And so the clear, one clear example of this is where we have binocular vision, we have two eyes, and if you show two different images, to the two different eyes wearing special glasses and whatnot, uh, it is really, it's, it's, it's effectively impossible to perceive both those images at the same time. Mm -hmm. And what you, might, you, what you might perceive is one of those images and then at some moment in time, suddenly you perceive the other image and it may go back and forth. Um, or you may just consistently just perceive one and obviously if you have one eye that's stronger than the other, it might be a factor there. But they've done, you know, this is sometimes used as in other experiments to sort of um, sort of show what someone's bias or subconscious might be doing. And so as an example, I'm sort of making this up, but there are like, if you show a heterosexual man 
two images and one is an attractive female and the other is a house or something, they will almost always perceive the attractive woman. Um, they may not ever perceive the house in, that's in the other eye. That's so, the point the Matrix makes with the red woman, right? Like the things that attract you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Right. So our subconscious is sort of making those decisions for us. Um, and, you know, we just have no, no control over that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and except for insofar as how we deal with that, right? Like, it's like, we, we sure. can't, we can't, we can't not notice what it is we notice, but we can uh, sort of choose how we manifest the behavior that is predicated on the presence of that stimuli. You know, that's a real, you know, again, these, this is a stimulus-driven uh, you know, sort of experimental paradigm, and it may be not at all a good reflection of sort of our, our free-thinking thought processes and, and free will in that context. Um, but to, to add to that, Alex, it's, um, but as, as we, if, if we know, we recognize that um, what we perceive may not be the entirety, and we therefore sort of search our space mentally or physically wow. or other things that we should be paying attention to, you know, that that's hopefully good. For, <laughs> you know, well, for that's interesting involved. because that seems to be driven by selection as well, right? The framework of values by that uh, predicate that which we will explore for in an environment, you know, it seems like we've got a beat on that, right? We've got a working marketing, like market economy. Like we know what we want from each other very well. We're very good at that. And so it's interesting to what extent we ask philosophical questions, but, you know, a lot of those philosophical questions, I think, could be answered in the way that we're trying to answer them through data. It's like, well, let's look at what we actually make, and then we'll understand the sorts of creatures we are, right? It's mm -hmm. like, look at what we're motivated to do, right? Like, we like to go eat with each other. We like to go physically, you know, exert ourselves. Like, we, we have replicable behaviors that you could list anthropologically alongside like homo species, you know, uh, definition, right? And we, we have large amounts of data that now show this sort of thing. And it seems like what we're trying to get at here is this seems to be, if we're going to try and answer these questions, this is a really good direction to take. Um, uh, and I think we did some good work today. How about you guys? Yeah, I had a good time. Did, did we, uh, did we, did we resolve it? I mean, I, don't, I, think we, I think we got it. Yeah, we nailed it. Um, it was as good as it could have been, right? <laughs> I think just that, about no free will out of Andrew, it's as good as it's definitely as good as it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, Babcock, uh, it was great having you on. We might have to have a, a, a part two of this. Uh, uh, if, and, you know, keep throwing out those questions whenever you listen. They're really yeah, I, I will. I've, I've been pretty uh, busy lately, so I haven't uh, been listening, but I will try to catch up. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't get the listeners. Keep, keep the zingers sense. coming. But yeah, you are a teacher, and I know it's an important and, uh, you know, big time of the year you're an English teacher, and so you're probably grading essays just about every moment of your life, so have fun. Yeah, uh, well, it's been more like, uh, I had two weddings to go to this weekend, so it's been oh, more wow. real-life things to deal with than... Uh, Speaking of motivated behavior, wow, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I, we have to, again, on an interesting note that could itself be the fount of its own conversation. And so well, I'm looking forward to that. It was great having you both on. I thought this was a great success. And, um, is this, uh, is this new software you're using? Yes. This is the zoom software and it's now professional and I now pay to use it. So, Oh, wow. I feel How much you pay? Uh, it's 15 bucks a month. And so we're going to think about doing a fundraiser to get the, the hundred, Pay the hundred thirty dollars to get the discounted rate of you know thirty dollars off uh, for the yearly package. So Ooh. down from like one fifty for the year or whatever it would be to one thirty, and you know, so that might be interesting through the anchor um, donation. App. How many how many listeners are you getting? We're getting about thirty two point two listeners per episode right now, and we recently doubled our listeners from five hundred or listens from 500 to 1,000 last month, and we're already up over 1,300 this good. month. And uh, th these consilience conversations, people like them. They like have, have, you, have you thought about getting like editing software and stuff like that? Yeah, we're getting there, and we're talking about getting um, uh, uh, an advertising intern as well as an audio editing oh, wow. intern. Ideally, somebody who could do both, right, because we're so small time right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, um, but, you know, 
these are the questions we're having. We look at analytics. We look at the days we're big, the days we're small. We look at the times that are good to release these pieces of content. And we, uh, you know, there are definitely days when people like to listen to podcasts. Yeah. Um, you know, Sundays can be big days. Tuesdays can be big days. Yeah. I, I think, I think editing is going to be helpful. And I'm not saying that to say, suggest that like, uh, this isn't useful, but it, but like, I think about podcasts I like to listen to. I prefer ones that are like a constructed narrative that I'm going to listen to for a certain amount of time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That, I think, that, I think that'll, 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 it's like easier to, to package it. I think, you know, like if you could condense it down and like, uh, you know, like think about like Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, right? I mean, it's like he has interviews, he constructs a narrative and it's like, he's, he's basically telling me a story rather than just a conversation that I don't really know where it's going to, like it goes in all sorts of directions. And my we point, a, uh, we, could, we could have a, a podcast about narratives and the neuroscience of narratives. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so, well, but I mean, you, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about stories and how like, that's how the human brain learns is through sort of the whole sort of the purpose of them is to teach lessons. Uh, and so it's like, you know, well, today's topic is free will. Well, what's the story of free will? Right. So, you know, like we, we kind of covered it in this, um, disorganized, which is totally fine for our conversation, but disorganized way. But if you could construct it to a narrative, it might be easier to follow the flow of, of what actually we covered. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, temperamentally how one goes about sort of conversing, you know, it, you know, the, with the big five trade model, uh, those open to experience, those with like sort of the creative intellect. So like to make free associations while conversing. I think that's the sort of conversation that we pursue here, like a literary yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people that do this too. Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, the yeah, that's old Aussie prime minister. Like, to some extent, I think we're just, we're trying to transmit a bunch of information all at once. And that's our goal rather than having a specific moral message. Right. We're just yeah. trying to throw it out there and make a lot of connections. And hopefully it hits home and can be helpful with some of the contemporary uh, questions that people are asking and some of the perennial questions too. So like sometimes we talk about the politics that are going on and that's about yeah. to get really important over the next couple of years. And I think yeah, yeah, yeah. data will be really important. But then like today talking about free will, we're also showing that I think we're, we're willing to engage with the hardest questions and show why, why they're serious. And I think yeah. because we're taking them seriously that, uh, you know, it helps to re-embody those questions or those, uh, those sort of, uh, you know, values that we've had forever and that we now have good evidence for why they're important. Um, yeah. Well, but I, I mean, I do agree that they're also good. Um, yeah. yeah. But your, 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 you know, uh, your goal, part of your goal, as I understand it is to have an organic conversation in which people may be willing to step out on a limb and say things that are truly on their mind without having a sort of a packaged agenda or you know you can edit it and it and it is easier to go through if there's a, a real tale to be told there a narrative um but that can sometimes also seem artificial um as, as if you right. are being, yeah. Uh, yeah that's a good point it also, it also the, uh, the producers to some some final thought process some yeah i was gonna say that that's sort of a different uh, a different project i suppose than what you're really going for which which makes sense but yeah. i do think if we you know if, if we keep doing this and we keep loving this and this is something we talk about and we wanted to say package this for massive consumption and we wanted to like do like, I don't know, like a 12 lecture series and we wanted to lay it out. I think telling like the story of the brain or something like that would be the right way to do it. I think, I think yeah. you are right that that would be sort of a, if we were going into production for something, yeah, that, that would be something that a consumer would expect. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. kind of what I was yeah, that's kind and of what I was saying. That is that, interesting like, to what extent a consumer expects narrative built into their product, right? Right. Yeah, that, not, I, I was thinking not replace this, but supplementary, like as this grows, yeah, you develop into, I mean, because you have so many subjects that you're targeting right now, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, which is cool. These are our initial forays into un unexplored territory. Yeah, but each of those sort of arrows we shoot into the ground, we expect to, uh, to, to look into those areas with greater focus as we move forward. We're just sort of, I think, I think we're defining our scope at this point. Yeah, 
Yeah. Have you branded a production name? Like, have you come up with like a company name? Um, I'm talking with Wes about that right now. And we're talking about logo and we're talking about getting some, um, some materials together before we go to this conference in March. Um, and so we're getting pretty serious about that. So it's taking shape. And I think that's the right question to ask. I mean, at the very least on Facebook right now, it's called the history of Western thought. And I'm just personally. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot you had that. I'm, I deleted my Facebook. And so I've totally forgotten all these things. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. You know, as now, uh, an old person who uses Facebook, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have about 600 followers there and that's, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I know I, I just forgotten that you had that name. I, I, yeah, that's right. I remember now. Yeah. Well, for the listeners, uh, Mr. Babcock's over in Michigan. So he's in the middle of, he's in the middle of the country and it's, it can get pretty snowy there. And so, you know, without Facebook, it's like, where does it, where does it all come from? Well, you can get it from YouTube now and we're going to put up some more data there so you can keep up with us. Yeah. 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 Our, us coast <laughs> the great, the great white North. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I, I think the conversation after the conversation was just as valuable. Um, <laughs> the meta narrative as it were. Yeah. Um, well guys, should we leave it there? Sounds good to me. Sounds good, Alex. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah, and a little bit longer for everybody because there were three of us. And so, you know, a nice uh, holiday treat for everybody. And if they yeah. need to get away from the table for an hour and 15 minutes to listen to some intelligent conversation, well, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you guys enjoy your turkey and your football. Likewise. Will do. Will do. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.